Listening to a tiny revolution, a podcast about ordinary people living revolutionary lives. I'm Kevin Garcia. Welcome back to another episode. You were in for a lovely conversation today with one of my internet slash real life crushes, Jure McKesson. If you don't know who that is, we'll get into that in a moment. Um, he's a real treat and a really, really wonderful human. So I can't wait to share that conversation with you. But before we get into that, I have to tell you, you guys, Bad Theology Kills, Undoing Toxic Belief and Reclaiming Your Spiritual Authority, my book is now live everywhere, all over the place. If you haven't picked it up yet, you need to go to thekevingarcia.com slash book. Pick it up now. It's available in um, ebook format for either your Kindle or other e-readers like Apple Books and such. And there is also um, the uh, printed version, the physical copy version, which you can order uh, from my website as well. Some of you even asked about like um, some autographed copies. I'm working on getting some prints in for myself. So if you're looking for that, just Stay on the lookout for that. And if you're looking for the audiobook, it's going to be dropping February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day to you, my good bitch. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm pretty amazed that we got it done. It was really like, it was such a group effort and it was such a, it's been powerful to see how many people have been pouring out their support for this. So you can go grab the book now um, at thekevingarcia.com slash book and I hope it blesses you as much as it blessed me your name thing um yeah other things coming up the sacred and queer men's retreat it's the first men's retreat I've ever done but I'm really excited about doing that it's taking place in Denver March 19th so if you are a trans queer non-binary or cis man or someone who identifies in the neighborhood of a of a you know a male identity identified human uh you're welcome to come out to this event um we're going to be exploring like things like shame and also like really talking about our sexuality and talking about desire and talking about body we're going to be really getting into like the question like what does it mean to be um a man in the 21st century especially a queer man especially a queer man of faith um you know what what are we doing for our healing so that we can heal our family and heal our uh fellow dudes out there because uh, toxic masculinity has taken so much from so many of us and I feel like this is part of the work of coming back together so I'm really really hopeful and excited about this so my dear 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 one if that sounds like something you want go to um, uh, you can go to my Instagram go to my link tree and there's a little thing that says sacred and queer men's retreat you can check it out there I'm working on getting the website together for Big Queer Adventure Co and so you can expect that coming to the internet very soon mama uh, I'm also getting ready to start planning some um, just big queer fam weekends in cities all across the country. You know, small little gatherings, small overnight experiences and some sweet little cute little Airbnb situations. Um, and going really deep into the heart of who we are um, as queer people and queer people of faith. Um, people who, you know, want to be intentionable, uh, intentionable? Wow. Intentional about the way we live. Um, so please be on the lookout for that. I'm really excited about sharing that. Um, and it's all kind of like, it's, it feels like it's all kind of coming together. Like, so my plan is like, I want to like DIY a book tour and like, you know, like we'll do like a book tour stop and also have a big queer fan weekend in the same place or 
maybe we'll go camping in Seattle. Maybe we'll have, I know right now, um, the wonderful and fabulous um, Lauren Wild, a.k.a. The Church Witch and I, are currently scheming on an idea for what we're calling Wild Spirit Weekend. So you keep your eyes glued to your social needs, um, except for when you need to take a break from them, obviously, because it's a little traumatic in these streets. You know what I'm saying? Um, Okay, I'm blathering on. Anyways, um, so that's that. So go check out the retreat information. Um, The book is out. Go get it. Rate it on Glamazon. So that, because like it really does matter because like eventually this is going to find its way into the hands of some people and they're going to be like, oh my God, we have to put bad ratings on it so that, you know, for whatever reason, we don't get the attention. Or maybe I need some bad reviews. Go leave a bad review for me. Let's see what happens. (laughs) Okay. um, I'm going to stop blathering on and get to the conversation with uh, today's guest. Um, He's one of uh, a new internet cousin, new internet friend, Deray McKesson. Deray McKesson is a civil rights activist focused primarily in issues of innovation, equity, and justice. Born and raised in Baltimore, he graduated from Baldwin College and holds an honorary doctorate from the New School and the Maryland Institute College of Art. Dre has advocated for issues related to children, youth, and families since he was a teen. As a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement and co-founder of Campaign Zero, he has been praised by President Obama for his work as a community organizer. He has advised officials at all levels of government and internationally and continues to provide capacity to activists, organizers, and influencers to make an impact. He's an incredible human, and today on the podcast, um, I ask him about his work. I ask him about his advocacy. It's just, it's, just, it's a really lovely conversation, and I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I do. So yeah, grab yourself something to drink, baby. This is my conversation with Jeremy McKesson. Also, I was really thrilled and so surprised to see you on... Uh, to see you as one of the featured speakers at QCF because I think a lot of times within our work as activists, um, a lot of times like spirituality gets shoved away and like our faith gets put under a rug or even just like sometimes like it becomes irrelevant. I was wondering like, how do you identify uh, with your, um, how do you identify spiritually and um, how does that help you in your work? Yeah, identify as a Christian. Uh, you know, it's interesting. When I when I grew up, we went to church because we had to, right? It was like, had to go to church. Looks like I'm at church today. There wasn't like strong belief. And it really wasn't until the protest that I like understood the power of belief because we did so many things that were dangerous and hard and challenging. And like we made it out and were covered and protected in a way that I just, uh, like I, I will never forget. And I'll never forget what our what our prayers felt like in those hard moments. And like that really brought me closer to a sense of God is like a real thing. Um, You know, it's interesting. The way that it shows up in my work is sort of like a a reminder that so much of what we do is fight for what we can't see. And it also um, when I think about the Bible, like biblical stories remind me of the power of a small group of people to change the world. That like sometimes I worry that people people get concerned that like everybody doesn't believe this thing yet. Or did it? And it's like, well, no, everybody never believed the best gift we ever got. Right. Like Correct. everybody didn't believe in Jesus. Everybody didn't believe in 
a host of things. It was like a small group of people who believe so deeply and then help spread the truth. And that's, mm. you know, that is certainly how the protests were, right? The protests were, it's sort of interesting now because everybody's a protester, but when it was hard yeah, yeah. and dangerous and that we were not popular, there were not a lot of people who were on our side, you know? Uh, and I'll never forget those days. Yeah, the days when it's like, it was just like the ragtag group of people who really started to inspire everybody else around you. And who, who kept going uh, in the face of everything, right? So there were a lot of protesters in the street. And there were, you know, there was, there's a core group of people, a lot of people, like a big core group, who just like stayed, even when like families turned on us, when the media turned on us, it was people who like we knew we were right. Uh, so it's interesting again to like see this tide now where like everybody's a protester and you know it's it, protesting is cool which is a net positive but people forget like the really wild uh, beginning so how much of that do you still carry with you like i feel like there is oftentimes like there's that lovely performative twitter twitter activism if you will where it's like, as long as I like tweet the right thing, as long as I'm following the right people, then I know that like I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing enough for you. When you say activist, tell me what you actually mean by that. Yeah, I think, you know, I try really hard not to sort of police these these words because, you know, I think about my grandmother, somebody who didn't call herself any of these things, but did so much work to help keep the block clean and like those sort of things. So I'm not super stressed about the way people identify. But when I think about the work of activism, it's people who sort of see something and take action or who join a group of people and take action. Uh, and I think about the people at the beginning who did that. I think about the people today who do it. I think about the people who, uh, especially young people, younger people who have like a plan to do it in the future. Right. I, so I'd love to like hone in on a little bit more about your family. Cause I feel like I, we always hear about the Duray who is out in these streets. Um, but what was growing up like for you? Like, who was your family? Who was close? What was life like? Yep. So my father raised us. My mother left when I was three. Uh, so me and my father and sister really close. My great-grandmother, also really close to her. She uh, has since passed, but she lived with us until we were, until I was like 11, she lived with us. And then it was just my dad. And, you know, he got married 10 million times. And that was, we're like, no more marriages, no more marriages. Uh, but the three of us are still really close. So it was just, it was the three of us really. And then my great-grandmother for the, the beginning 10 or 11 years. Uh, and it was good. You know, we were poor, but not sad, right? Like didn't have a ton of physical things, but a lot of love. Mm, yeah, my yeah. father um, is one of five kids. Uh, one Ooh. uncle was in jail for almost all of my childhood. Uh, but the other kid, all his his other brothers and sisters really helped raise us. And we were the only kids in the family until pretty recently. So one of my aunts has, uh, she had twins who were about 10-ish now, probably 10-ish, right. 10 or 11. So they're, they're pretty young relative to me and my sister, Teray. Uh, so we grew up as like the only kids and we had a great time with them. They were great. So uh, that was fun. You know, it's interesting when I think about being gay though, because mm -hmm. this last go round, like this last sort of fashion cycle during pride month, there was all this pride gear and I buy a lot of pride stuff, both as a way to support and as a way to sort of signal um, and there were people who were being really critical of like the commodification of pride, which makes which makes sense yeah. to me. Like the critique is important, uh, but I just think about and the reason I still buy pride sort of things is like I would have loved to see 
anybody in pride material when I was a kid because mm-hmm. as a kid it was like there was nobody right like I didn't see anybody in my neighborhood who was out there was really nobody like the only kids who were out in high school were picked on so dramatically that like that didn't seem like an option you know yeah so so that was I didn't really um, I didn't really sort of join a community of gay people until I was well until adulthood like I didn't it just didn't I didn't know where to find it and wasn't around one uh, until pretty late I think the first gay person I ever met was in college and it was uh, my like the RA in the other building who then later like I joined a fraternity in college because apparently that's what you do um, to make friends when you're lonely. Um, and he uh, he was like one of the only like first gay people I ever met in my life and like set a model was like, oh, there's not a right or wrong way to do this. There's just like you just kind of have to sort of begin. And I, I mean, I, that wasn't until I was like 20, 22. And I and right. even when I was in my fraternity, I was still like not fully out of the closet, even though like, I mean, you can spot my glitter from like a thousand miles away, even if I'm not wearing it. You know what I'm saying? That's so funny. Yeah, yeah, it's real. It's like, a, that's why it's so cool to see this generation of young people, because it's like what they the way they are able to show up in school and then like it's just so beyond anything I would have imagined as a kid. I know. It's and like I'm, I look at the, these Gen Gen Zers. Is that what they're called now? The Gen Zs. <laughs> yeah. I look at the Gen Zers and I'm like, how you 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 know your gender already? How did you do that? How did you figure that out? I'm still working on it. Well, it's incredible. It's like a really. Um, it's sort of like a startling and powerful thing to witness. You know, you're like, wow, you, you all have like figured this out. And I, I'm not even jealous. I'm just like proud. You know, I'm like, wow, I'm like happy that, uh, that the collective work like create a space for you to live like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's helpful. And it's like, I, I look at like, um, I was running a house church for a while and we got a few people who were like these 17 year old kids. That kicked What's out a house of- church? Oh, house church for us was like, just um, think of like small group, but like, um, this is my only spiritual community. You know what I'm saying? It's like, rather than going to like a, a, an actual church building, we just did it inside of home. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. So like I, uh, we started this little house church where we were very explicit about who was welcome, including queer people and trans people um, and who we centered, people of color, people who fought to be heard elsewhere. And I was getting these like seventeen-year-old kids who got kicked out of the mega church in town, or one of the mega churches in town, for coming out. And I was like, "Wow!" Like, I would have never been able to dream. Like, I could have never come out in my youth group. I'm like, and y'all did, and you paid the price for it. And, fucking, and that's like kind of like the reason. Like, I'm I'm super passionate about the work because kids shouldn't lose their place in in their youth group. Like. It's wild to me. Um, it's also like really interesting to um, to think about what the growth in the internet just opened up for people. You know that like yeah yeah. I remember. I don't, how old are you? I'm 34. I just turned 30 a minute ago. Okay. So do you remember like the AOL chat rooms? Like do you even do you oh, remember that? Oh, 100. Yeah. 
like that was the extent of sort of chatting on the internet. And like, even when I think about how like risque and whatever people thought it was, it was like still pretty random, you know, it like, wasn't, it was like sort of organized, I think, I guess, but like, not really. And you think yeah, about like, like you would like kind of wander around into random places and see who would actually respond to you. Yeah. And it was like, this is before, um, this was before Twitter. This is before Google even like, I remember, I'll never forget asking my dad to buy me, um, like one of the internet directory books. Cause like, that was how you found web pages, you know? Huh. Like how how would you know what a web page like how, there was no google so like how would you know what a website was there were these books like that look they were sort of big like telephone books oh um, i think i i probably just missed that because like, i don't remember <laughs> that at all i do remember the dial-up though the sound oh uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah so the dial-up is a thing but yeah there were books there was like a, they were like huge they were literally like like phone books that were by topic. So it'd be like gardening. And then it'd be like a whole section on, like it'd be websites about gardening. Um, mm. But that is so crazy. You know, you look back and you think about how do we navigate, but there are kids today who like, they can see themselves in the world online in a way that was just not real for us, you know? Yeah. And thank God, because like, I feel like I am learning more about, how to break down my own binaries because of all of these youths coming out of the woodwork who seem to know it's almost just like all of the things that were a big deal for us. It's just like, Oh no, that's just, that should be normal. It's normal for us now. And we're, I'm still working on it, working through that. Um, I wanted to hone in on something uh, like my first introduction to you besides seeing your name in all the headlines was, uh, on an ad, like it was like an advocate, like a talk that you gave a bazillion years ago, and the advocate posted your talk. Yes, and you, you said uh, about going from out of the closet but into the quiet in relationship to your father. And I know so many of us have had similar conversations with our parents. So I'm wondering, like, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what that process was like for you, with like helping your father work through feelings and just being a gay black man in uh in america like and like how that relates to like a family who might be more traditional as well oh this so what i was saying then it came from a tweet that i did online uh, like during the protest this idea that like i was never in the closet i was in the quiet just because you didn't know doesn't mean it wasn't real uh and when i started my dad had us young, you know, it's so funny. I think about like what it would be like to have kids at 24 and I'm like, woo, y'all didn't know what y'all were doing. We didn't know, you know, if I had yeah, kids no, today, I would be, have kids right now. Yeah. They had, they had no clue what they were doing. I have much more sympathy as an adult now. Cause I'm like, I'm 30 something and can barely raise myself, <laughs> let alone a whole child. So oh, shout out to Calvin. Um, but I remember the first time we were trying to have this conversation, Calvin, Calvin's my dad. He just like, mm. wasn't, he, he didn't know poor, poor daddy. He didn't know what he was doing. So we just like right. stopped it. it. You know, when like, you know, when it's like getting bad, you think like, you know, when it's veering bad and you're like, mm. I love you. You love me. You're about to say something crazy and we're probably never going to recover from it. So just stop. I'm about to say something. I don't mean to be offensive, but dot, dot, dot. Yeah. It was that tone. He, he didn't, he wouldn't have the language for like, I don't mean like it was the setup though. was like, I really want a kid or something. It was just like, daddy, let's just do this later. Right. So then mm. we just didn't talk about it again. And it wasn't like a thing. It just, cause it was like high school or I was about to go to college. And then in college, I had this huge crush on this guy 
And I called my dad because I didn't know who else to call. And me and my sister are really close today. But like we didn't, we weren't, you know, we went to different high schools mm-hmm. on purpose so that we didn't have to sort of be around each other anymore. And I was always in student government and she was like softball and whatever. And because she's older, I was always like to raise little brother or she mm-hmm. was always Duray's big sister because I was always like the student government guy and we hated it. So she went to a different high school. We went to different high schools. So we didn't become close until after college. Mm-hmm. And so I called Calvin and I was like, I was like freaking out about this crush. And, but I didn't say gender. I just like, was like, ah, I really like, like they're so great. Da, 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 da. And then mm-hmm. in the middle of the conversation, it's clear that it's a guy. Right. And he is just like, He's like, doesn't say anything. He gives me great advice and he, and we just like keep moving. And that was it, you know? And he Hmm. was so good about it. And it was just so easy and simple. And that was sort of, and we probably, I know we talked about it later. Um, And he would, you know, it was like the stereo. I felt like I was on a TV show. It was like, Mm -hmm. I just want you to be happy. And then you're like, okay, daddy. Okay. 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 (laughs) Uh, He was like, on the one hand, it's like, I'm really glad that this wasn't a huge deal. Like the, the way that I made it in my mind. Did you, were you like wanting a different reaction from him or did it feel like, yes, that was right on time? No, no, he was great. It was, you know, I think that, um, I think we, part of like where we, we grew up in Baltimore and uh, the way our family was set up, I think we sort of grew up pretty quickly. Like we just, the way we thought about the world had to, had to move quicker than, than, uh, you know, I think that kids probably should have to move in their mind, uh, but he was good, you know, like I think that he had to unlearn a lot of things about like what it meant to be a man and, and have a boy, you know, mm-hmm. like what is it like to be a dad, like, what is it like to be a father and have a son who is gay and like, will the name live on? Like all those things that like that, those were issues for him. Mm-hmm. Um, going to be healthy. Like legacy. Yeah. Like those sort of things were things that like came up later and he had to work like that wasn't my work to do. So I was very happy when. Uh, Teray had kids because it was like grandkids got them done. Woo! Yeah, that is exactly it. My mother for like a long time was just like, I I just really want grandbabies. It's what I want. And I have three brothers, so like oh I can. Oh, it's it's as is it's a it's as beautiful and as um. Uh, I mean, it's as good as it can get. I mean, I really lucked out with my brothers. They're wonderful in so many ways, and they're also such dudes in so many ways. Right. I can only like, like, But thankfully, my little brother had a baby, or his wife had a baby, and my oldest brother's wife had a baby. And I feel like I am just now in full-blown gay uncle mode. That is my calling in this life. Please do not ask me to uh, procreate. Right. And it's like, maybe I will have kids, but now I don't feel like the world's going to end if I don't, you know, whereas like, and he wasn't like disappointed. You could just tell he was like, like, I love you so much. I'd let you be such a great dad. And you're like, daddy, you're killing me. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, I notice how you, you call him daddy. And I think that's just very sweet. Like, I mean, and I mean that completely sincerely. Yeah. He, it's funny. I either call him daddy or Calvin. So there's no real in between. Um, Mm -hmm. So people are like, do you call him best first name? It's like, well, yeah, because the alternative is daddy. So, uh, daddy, daddy. I'm like, daddy. Yeah, I'm, also from, I'm also from the south, though. So, like, daddy, what are you doing? Like, that's totally normal for me. Yeah, he's uh, he's a good guy, totally adorable. He follows mm-hmm. me. I had to call. He looks at my Instagram stories, and I can, you know, like you can see. Um, and <laughs> is that a good or bad thing for you? 
Oh, it's fine. And he, um, and it was so cute because he just never left a message. But my father has like, he just, I know he has things to say just about everything, but he never, ever left a message. So we talk one day and I'm like, hey, daddy, you know, you can like write back on these things. And he's like, oh my God, I didn't know. So now he leaves a message on everything. <laughs> like, okay. Oh, no. <laughs> happy medium, happy medium. We got to find a happy medium. is not as important as people believe that like the numbers are actually on our side that this is that from a number perspective like we've already won the hard part is that they have screwed with the system so much to nullify the fact that the numbers on our side so if our people vote and if there wasn't voter suppression we'd be fine like this would not even be like a it'd be a no contest win yeah i think that and part of might be the governor of georgia as well Absolutely. Yeah. It just wouldn't even be, this wouldn't even be like something that we're all fretting about. It'd be pretty easy. I think that, uh, I think that one of the things that's happened to people in marginalized communities and I, and I use marginalized with like a capital, a capital M. I think this is like mm-hmm. a broad thing is that the system has failed people for so long, so consistently that they no longer believe the system can do good. And I think that that is, mm-hmm. so part of our work, right. Is to push people and remind them that like, the system is a function of people. And as yes. long as people can do good, the system can do good. Uh, yeah. When the system does bad, it's because people allow the system to do bad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need you to vote, not because it's going to change everything, but because it's a part of the way that we like write the system, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there there is the temptation to withdraw. Um, and I think by withdrawing, it's like, therefore, it cedes your power to the system that is going to continue to do what it does. And if one does not kind of like reinvest your power back into yourself and reinvest your power back into your community, then nothing can get done. And I think, and I, but I'm sympathetic to the people who withdraw. Like I get it, right? I, I like, I get that you have you sort of believed in the thing for so long. It didn't do anything to help you. You know, like, mm-hmm. I get it, you know? I think that part of it is that, like, we have to get all our stuff together so that, like, when people sort of reinvest, uh, we can actually make it mean something, you know? Right. I, I think what I'm hearing, something, at least I'll say, something that undergirds my work, and I think something I would say undergirds your work, slash, I mean, it was the subtitle of your book, is hope. And I'm wondering, especially in the season that we're in right now with, you know, you know, not saying war is bridging in Iran, like, you know, we're getting close to war with Iran, but what gives, what gives you hope? What keeps you grounded even when there's every reason to despair? So a a lot of what called me to the the street at the beginning was, um, was the fact that I used to teach. And, you know, I think about all the kids I taught grew up in a world that did not treat them right, wasn't fair to them, and they didn't do anything wrong, right? They're 11. They didn't create this. They didn't perpetuate it. They didn't co-sign it. So for a long time, it was a belief that, like, if we don't fight for kids, who will? And that, like, I might not be able to stop the ill consequences for you know, 50 year olds, 70 year olds, but I can certainly do something so nobody else has to experience this. Uh, so that's a part of it. I think now it has morphed into 
a deep belief that we can win. Like sort of this understanding that like we know so much more than we used to. So it's not a question mm-hmm. of what to do, and it's not even a question of how to do it. It's a question of will we do it? Like, can we tell a story in a way that puts people in this direction? Can we paint a picture? Can we, like, that is sort of where the, that's where the rubber meets the road in this moment. Like, can we actually marshal the resources to do what needs to be done? And, like, I'm interested, right? Like, I, I, I think we can. I want to believe we can. Um, and I think that this is, like, the moment. I think we're in the moment where we'll find out. I think so too. There was some, I've been writing a lot about um, around re- reactivating people's imaginations, and I think you mentioned this in your talk at QCF as as well as like around the role imagination plays in the work because it's something. I where I'm a I'm a life coach among other things. Um, cause, you know, why, a millennial has a thousand side hustles, right? Um, but something I when, I when I'm working with my clients, I'm just like, you have to be start imagining. Well, I don't know what that would feel like to get over my depression to come out to my family to come out to whatever. Uh, but it's one of those things where like, if we can't even imagine a better world, of course it's not going to show up for us, you know, and of course we're going to feel demoralized and not do the work to bring it to fruition. For sure. Right. And like I said, at the talk, I think one of the things that, um, that I learned during the protest for sure is that, uh, people of color we have or people with marginalized identities this sort of goes beyond simply people of color but is when you grow up in a world with constraints you you learn the constraints as a matter of survival you do you know how long 20 dollars goes you know like you know the route to walk home so you won't get harassed like you just you learn all of it really well and the problem is that uh we get so used to the presence of constraints that, that like you can't imagine and imagination is by default a world where there are no constraints. Imagination is saying like, everything's on the table. We talk it out, we dream it up. Like that is like what it means to imagine. So it is like a real learning and unlearning for people to teach them how to imagine again. Like to say like, okay, I get it. I know you, I know this is how it's always been, but show me something else. And you'd be shocked. Like even experts, like I spent a lot of time with people who spent their whole lives studying one particular thing. And like, they really struggled to, to like help imagine a new feature. They do a really good job of helping us decipher the past and helping us understand what happened in the past. But you ask some people like, well, what could we do next? And it is like, you would think you just like, I don't know, ask them the answer to like the hardest problem in the world. There's a black, uh, black theologian. I can't remember his name. He's like, he was a popular. It was like, he was, he was like uh, the precursor to James Cone. And something he talked about this story um, from like he he was like first generation, like, you know, first one generation separated from his grandparents who were slaves. Um, And he was out in the field working with his mom and these white Methodist pastors come up and they invite them to the UMC church. And his mother was already a pastor of the like the black Baptist church in town. And he wrote, he said, like, it is a diseased, uh, diseased social imagination, which says that there is someone who is not a part of the beloved community. And that has just struck me as like, that's kind of the truth is like, there is a diseased social imagination in, in our culture right now. And I think a lot of the work, at least from my, from my perspective is like to inspire hope is some of the most important work we can do. And I think it starts with just like being like, Hey, like, what do you, what would it be like, you know, for me, what would it be like for you to like, walk downtown Atlanta and not feel like you're going to get harassed because you're wearing a crop top. 
What would it be like for you to go home to your family and not have to tone yourself down at all? What would it be like to have a city where there's no homeless youth um, or homeless people in general? I, that's, that's the other thing is like you said that like really struck me is like it doesn't matter if like we fix like these individual problems. You know, we want to fix the system that is broken, that is making people become homeless. Yeah, one of the things that we do to help people, one of the things that we do to help people imagine about the police is that we'll say, now do it with you. It's like, think about, think about the place where you feel the most safe. Do you have it? Do you want me to say it out loud? No, no, no. As long as you know it. Yes, I have it. Is that place probably is a place where the police aren't present. 100%. (laughs) And it's like, whatever that place is, whatever the, the, whatever makes up that place, like whatever's in it, we believe that everybody deserves a little bit of that. So whether that Mm. place has like love, food, shelter, caring people, I don't know, resources, like whatever it has, like that's actually what safety is. Safety is not people with guns standing behind you. You know what I mean? Right. I keep thinking like, especially past couple of weeks where there was that shooting at the church in Texas. And like, there was a million people who had guns on them and they, the, the dialogue from the people at the church was like, we're thankful to the great state of Texas for like providing us with laws so we could have guns. And I'm like, how do y'all not see that? Like, what if there wasn't a gun in the first place? Right. If he had just come in yelling, then this would have, he'd have been, you'd have got him too, you know, you'd have got him out and everybody would be alive. Yeah. And that just, it breaks my heart because like, it again, again, it always just comes back to like, it does not have to be this way. Um, and it comes back with to that uh, a social imagination of being able to imagine that. Uh, so our, I have one more question, and then I'll let you go. Okay. Be prepared. Are you in love? No, no. So if you have somebody for me, let me know. Let me know. Listen. Um, anytime you're back, you're in Atlanta. You let me know. I'll take you to some fun queer bars. Um, we'll be real. We'll have a we'll have a fun time. It'll be great. And also, you got a great smile. Like it was just like I was like, oh my gosh, his teeth are really that white and straight. That's incredible. Oh my god, you're hilarious. Well, I appreciate it. It was it was good to uh, it was good to be there, and, and I'm happy that that was the first thing. I literally I came from Ghana to Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and it was a good that was a good community to be a part of. And like I said on stage, it's like. I didn't know as a kid that spaces like that existed. So, um, yeah. so yeah. Well, come on through anytime. That was my conversation with DeRay McKesson. If you want to get in touch with DeRay, you can go to DeRay.com. That's D-E-R-A-Y.com. You can follow him across social media. I believe it's just at DeRay on everything. Yeah, DeRay on Twitter. I think it's I am DeRay on um, Instagram. And you can also pick up his fantastic book on the other side of freedom, The Case for Hope. Um, it's uh, everywhere. Books are sold. So like, go pick it up. Um, and uh yeah if you want to listen to his podcast it's called pod save the people with deray um and they go over everything from like news culture social justice and politics through deep conversations with influencers and experts and the weekly news from fellow activists Brittany uh packnett and sam sinwell i can't pronounce your last name sam 
I'm so sorry. And I feel embarrassed that I can't do that. But I'm going to blame it on my dyslexia today because that's what we're doing. (laughs) Anyways, thank you so much, Dre, for being on the show. It was a true pleasure to spend time with you. And by the way, if you want to hear the full unedited version of that podcast, that conversation with DeRay, go to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia and learn about all the bonus content that you could be listening to right now, getting all the juicy extra bits, honey. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so pleased. So, so happy. And uh, yeah. What a time. What a dream come true, you guys. Funny thing about this one, too, is like I asked Ray to be on my podcast way back in the day before I was anybody on the Internet or anyone fancy. And he never responded. And I got really down on myself. Like, I'm never going to make it as a podcaster. And look at me now, bitch. Look at me now. Okay, I'm done. Credits time. Um, A Tiny Revolution is brought to you by currently 121 amazing humans on Patreon. And what the fuck is Patreon? Patreon is the way that you help support creators who are making the content that matters. So if you like this conversation and you think there should be more things like it, if you think there should be more conversations about advocacy and voting and racism and how we're going to destroy racism together, you know what I'm saying? Um, You should definitely become a Patreon supporter. Um, we have Sunday Circle, which is my, um, I sent, I put up a private video for just the people who are supporting. Um, think of it like a, a dope ass sermon, but you don't have to dress up to go to church. Um, it's my way of teaching and like giving back. And then also there is, um, I'm, I think I'm, I'm working on an idea around doing the videos on Sunday and then having like a live talk back with just Patreon folks, Patreon circle members. Meow, meow, meow. So, uh, go to it. $5 a month really helps a dollar a month. If I'm being honest, actually doesn't help. Cause I only see like 30 cents of that dollar. Um, so $5 is really actually the level that actually helps. So if you're someone who's listening, you've been giving a dollar up it to five dollars help help a sister out plus you get on my monday morning email list which i've been consistent about bitch can you believe that consistency as a patreon person we're really taking strides forward wow magic cool okay um i'm done talking go pick up the book the uh bad theology kills it's available on my website at thekevingarcia.com uh if you like the show make sure you're subscribed across all the kinds of places um make sure you leave it a review because it's the way that we do these things um and if you don't like it um let me know why so that i can change who i am to fit your fragile worldview let me know in the comments um all right i am finished talking go get the book um and i guess you know drink some water take your meds call your therapist move your body eat something delicious breathe oh spend time breathing bitch you need it you need it and by that i mean i need it so yeah This has been another episode of A Tiny Revolution. Follow me across social media at The Kevin Garcia. And until next time, my good bitch, I'll see you later. Bye.